0: Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, whatever the case may be. You're somehow listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast, hosted by me, Mr Andy Roberts. I'm a Welshman with a huge love of video games, like Final Fantasy, Kingdom Hearts, and Silent Hill, a fondness for doodling and creating stuff, and a real passion for horror films, especially related to the British phenomenon of video nasties. As a lot of horror fans understand, the UK went a bit mad in the 80s. Similar to the US's Satanic Panic, where we thought we were under attack by violent images in horror films. The government at the time, ran by the ultra-polarising Margaret Thatcher, bandied up with a few household names. Mary Whitehouse, the sort of offended old woman that you'd cross the street to avoid. Graham Bright, a witless MP who thought that dogs were going to be affected by horror films. Sir Thomas Hetherington, who came up with the fabled list of titles which were bound to be harmful to people. And finally, Tim Kruger, who headed the infamous raids on businesses looking for obscene material to prosecute and then burn in the furnace. All this dramatist personae were successful in not only saving us from eternal corruption but for cementing certain films as of examples why you don't let the government get involved with policy on supposed offensive filmmaking. Not only were they far too heavy-handed, but they've wasted everyone's time in the future who now seeks these films out, expecting to be mortified at the contents, myself included. To compare and contrast the idiocy of their behaviour, I decided to take a look at similar titles to the Video Nasties that were available around the same time to showcase equally as disturbing examples of horror which were ignored hypocritically by the powers that be. Today, we're focusing on slashes with a twist. For slasher connoisseurs, it's quite a recurring feature for there to be a shock ending or a plot twist slash killer reveal, so this isn't necessarily an original idea, But the two examples that we have today, however, are mostly remembered for their outrageous twist, which is substantially more memorable than the usual. Today's examples are 1983's Sleepaway Camp and 1986's April Fool's Day. So we'll start with Sleepaway Camp first. Near Camp Arawak, Angela and brother Peter are swimming with their father John and John's friend Lenny in the lake that surrounds the camp. A nearby lifeguard who's heading a water skiing exercise allows his female companion to take over and tragedy strikes when she fails to see the family colliding into them all and instantly killing John and one of the children. Eight years later, Angela is living with her eccentric Aunt Martha and her cousin Ricky, and is about to send them to Camp Arawak, giving them a packed lunch for the trip and giving them their physicals' reports. Angela appears incredibly shy and quiet, attracting the attention of Judy, the camp's most popular girl, and Meg, the counsellor for the girls'. When she appears to dislike the food, head counsellor Ronnie takes her into the kitchen to see if there's anything that she wants, leaving her in the care of the paedophile chef, Artie, who tries to molest her. Ricky intervenes and saves Angela, while shortly afterwards an unseen person enters the kitchen and knocks Artie off balance. Addressing the person as kid, Artie is unable to prevent himself from falling and spilling a huge vat of boiling water on himself, scalding him near fatally. After the owner, Mel Kostick deems it an accident, Ricky plays baseball with bullies Billy, Kenny and Mike, but prevails over them. At a social event later on, Kenny and Mike invite Angela to a skinny dip later that night, but begin to bully her when she refuses to speak to them, leading Ricky and his friend Paul to fight the pair away from her. Paul goes over to talk to her after the fight is broken up, and Angela speaks for the first time, saying goodnight to him. Later that night, Kenny is fooling around with another girl, Leslie, whom he dunks into the water for a prank. Whilst underneath the boat, Kenny is drowned by the killer whom he recognises, with his rotten body being found in the morning by Councillor Eddie. Angela is targeted the next day by Judy and Meg when they spy her talking to Paul, kissing her later that evening, which seems to put Angela off somewhat. The next day while the camp is out swimming, Judy confronts Paul and Angela, and then gets Meg involved, who begins to attack Angela when she does not answer back. When Ronnie punishes Meg for her behaviour, Judy verbally abuses Angela, insinuating that she's queer and prepubescent, leading to Councillor Susie defending her and slapping Judy. As Angela leaves the cabin, she's pelted with water balloons by Billy and Mike. After Caustic admonishes all involved, Billy is killed in the toilet when the killer barricades him into a cubicle and drops a large nest of hornets inside, causing him to be stung to death. Caustic begins to suspect Ricky for his violent outbursts, while Paul and Angela funnel around later that night on the beach, leading Angela to flash back to her childhood when she and Pete walked in on her father in bed with his friend Lenny in a sexual tryst, and it causes her to reject Paul's advances. During a game of Capture the Flag, Angela stumbles upon Judy kissing Paul out of spite, and subsequently gets thrown into the water by Meg and Judy to further humiliate her. Later that night, Meg arranges to meet Costas for dinner and takes a shower, when the killer stabs her in the back, ripping downwards and killing her. Paul asks Angela for forgiveness and is asked to meet her at the waterfront later that night, while Eddie takes the junior-aged kids to go camping. Two of them start complaining about the cold, so he takes them home via car, while Costas looks around for Meg, finding her stabbed corpse in the shower. Convinced that Ricky is the killer, Costas stomps off. After being rejected by her date Mike, Judy begins to curl her hair when the killer enters and knocks her unconscious, before smothering her with a pillow and violating her with the curling iron, killing her. Eddie returns to the camp and finds all of his kids under his charge have been hacked into pieces with a hatchet. While Costist accosts Ricky and locks him unconscious, only to encounter the real killer who fires an arrow through his throat. Ronnie calls the police after hearing from Eddie about the kids, and together with Susie, he tries to round up any of the missing children to keep them indoors. At the waterfront, Angela meets with Paul and suggests they go swimming. The police officer finds Ricky, battered and bruised but alive, while Ronnie and Susie head to the waterfront hearing a strange singing. They see Angela naked and stroking Paul's head which rests in her lap, just as she has a flashback of Aunt Martha, who coos over her, ecstatic that now she has a little girl in the house, before referring to Angela as Peter, revealing that the real Angela died in the accident, with Peter being raised as his sister in Martha's care. Angela stands up and snarls horrifically as Ronnie and Susie are shocked to see her blood-stained, dropping Paul's severed head, and sporting male genitals as the film ends.
1: Hurry, sweeties, we don't want to be late for the bus. Goodness no, well, that wouldn't do at all. Richard, Angela, oh here you are. Look what I did. I packed you and your cousin some goodies for the ride up to camp. Wasn't that nice of me? Any hmm? chips? Why, of course. I believe there's a whole bag. Why, I'm almost sure of it. Angela, isn't there anything special my little girl would care for? Hmm? We gotta go, Mom. It's getting late. Why, of course you do, dear. We wouldn't want them to leave without us, now would we? No? No, I'm afraid that that wouldn't do. Come, children, let's be on our way. Now what? I believe that I've forgotten something. Now what can it be? Oh, I remember what it is. I knew I wouldn't forget. I just kept reminding myself. In fact, I tied a string around around my finger so i wouldn't forget see and i didn't you never can be too careful oh but well, what is it already oh just a moment i'll be right back good old mom's at it again here they are all filled out and signed by yours truly. Wasn't that nice of me? Hmm? What are they? Why, they're your physicals, of course. We can't go to camp without our physicals now, can we? Just be careful not to tell anyone how you got them. Oh, no, no. I'm afraid that they wouldn't approve of that at all. Even though they know that I am a doctor. No matter what they do, I'll never tell. Oh, you're such a dear...
2: Well, run along now. So long, Mom.
1: Goodbye, my angel. I hope you have a good time. But of course you will. Take good care of my little girl, Richard. Goodbye, Mom.
0: With an ending in that vein, Sleepaway Camp was destined to remain in everyone's memory long after the final reel had worked its magic. It was released in the golden age of slashers, too, so it had plenty of rich contemporaries to compare with. And the Canadian slasher Happy Birthday to Me aside, Sleepaway Camp has to have one of the most out-of-the-blue shock endings that features in any slasher picture. The film was born when director Robert Hiltzik decided to cut his third-year classes at New York University for film. Fearing that he'd be relegated to menial tasks after graduating, he decided to get a head start in movie making and just go ahead with making one. Choosing a slasher film for its low-cost, high-profit popularity... Hiltzik settled on setting the film at a nearby summer camp called Camp Algonquin in Argyle, New York. As a youth, Hiltzik had attended the camp himself, and it had since closed down and remained vacant, so not only was it familiar to him location-wise, but the owner of the camp at the time was also willing to let Hiltzik have free reign of the place. Writing the film, Hiltzik wanted to eschew the usual casting of young adults as teenagers, and instead wanted to cast actual adolescents in the film – He spoke about union rules limiting the working hours for the kids to a scant eight hours, compared to the usual 10 to 15 hours that an over 18-year-old would allow. But he staunchly preferred to have real kids in the film so that the audience could react to the film much better. He also described his writing as coming up with the beginning and the end first, with a particular focus on the end so that the audience would talk about it afterwards. He explained that the psychosexual elements of the film were weaved into the main plot to then foreshadow that shocking ending, as he felt to do so otherwise would just cheat the audience. The original 90-minute draft pretty much became the finished film with little alteration, so for those fans of the film, there's not that many deleted scenes or unshot sequences that were omitted. The only exception to this was apparently a shot of the dead Judy, which was removed due to the MPAA's interference. The film started shooting in earnest, though production was notably delayed by one day, which stuck throughout. No more issues cropped up though, so the shoot was rather organised and quite collected. The outdoor scenes were the first to be shot, as fall had already creeped in, with the trees about to turn their autumnal colours. So they wanted to get the summery vibe pinned down straight away. They were a little unlucky, though, as some of the foliage around eventually did start turning orange, forcing the crew to begin spray-painting the grass and the nearby shrubbery to keep the continuity. Of course, you know by now that the killer is Angela, but the actual actor who held the weapons and committed the atrocities was actor Jonathan Tiersten, who played Ricky, leading to a rather humorous irony when Mel Costis attacks Ricky and blames him for the murders. This was done to disguise the real killer's identity, as Tearsten had veiny arms and hair, which were decidedly unfeminine. He even wore a wig during the scenes where the killer is in the shadows, such as before Kenny's and Judy's murders. For the paedophilic chef Artie's death, the special effects crew had the actor on a fake floor, with tubes running along his skin, pumping liquid gelatin through the fake blisters, giving the illusion that they were both fresh and very angry. It certainly worked, and they even went the extra mile and had genuine paramedics take him away for the subsequent scene. The death by Hornet's Nest, the director's favourite scene, was achieved by making a dummy of the actor and glazing the head with an extremely sugary mixture, drawing the actual bees towards it so they could writhe happily. The shocking ending, which reveals that Angela is actually male, was done with a svelte young naked man who wore a mask of actress Felissa Rose, the actress playing Angela. Originally, Felissa Rose was supposed to wear a strap-on penis, but it was scrapped due to both the complexity and the ethics of such a scene. The actor playing Angela during this sequence is unnamed, but it was known that he had to get drunk in order to follow through with it. Interestingly, the scene also reveals that Paul has been killed by Angela, but the fake head which portrayed him was subsequently stolen from the set after the film had completed. It wasn't all sugar and rainbows, however. Actor Willie Cuskin, who played the bullied kid Mozart, was bullied for real by some of the other kid actors on set. So the actor that played Gene, Frank Trent Saladino, had to step in during these moments to tell the other children off when their pranks became hurtful. The actor playing Kenny, Johnny Dunn, also cut his hand open when he flipped over the canoe just before his death was to be filmed, leading to a swift hospital visit to remedy the situation. And of course there was the ultimate irony, director Hiltzik was in danger of not graduating from New York University because he'd skipped so many classes, leading to him having to show the lecturers parts of his film so that they could acknowledge that he'd learned enough to earn his degree. Sleepaway Camp, however, is also memorable for more than just its admittedly shocking ending. The whole work through and through is chock full of strange camp sexualized subtext. Angela's descent into a killer of her peers and the adults in her world stems from the trauma that she suffered from a relatively young age. Firstly, her father, who's clearly shown in her flashbacks to be a homosexual who's repressed his behaviour, at least enough to have two children with a woman. A childhood incident in which Angela and her brother Pete spy on their father engaging in sex with another man whilst appearing to be doing nothing except making them giggle, would clearly have a negative effect, just as any other child who witnesses sexual acts when they wouldn't understand. In the same flashback sequence, there's an uncomfortable depiction of the younger Pete reaching out for his older sister, in a curious, but a sexually charged way, hinting that sibling-on-sibling sexual abuse may have also occurred. Of course, we now know that Pete is the one who in fact grows up to be Angela, after the real Angela is tragically killed in a boating accident. This is now forced upon him by the clearly deranged Aunt Martha, who desires a little girl so much that she simply won't accept that Pete for the boy he is, and forces him to live as a girl. With so much sexuality, gender subversions and life changes occurring within a year or two, it's really no wonder that Angela grows up to express her frustration and anger ...as externalised violent murder. This extends to the displays of sexuality and gender norms around her. Most of her victims represent a niche level of either sexuality or gender stereotypes. Her first victim, Artie, is clearly a paedophile... ...though disturbingly his colleagues seem not only to be aware of it... ...but they just actively dismiss it with a chuckle. His predatory actions against Angela especially... ...lead to his hopefully fatal demise with a scalding hot pan of water... Kenny is killed next, who invites Angela to the lake later that night, only to begin bullying her when she refuses to accept or engage with him. Kenny later has another girl, Leslie, brought along successfully, only to have him dunk her into the lake as a practical joke, with all of his male friends watching and egging him on, in a kind of chauvinistic affirmation ritual of some kind. Angela disposes of him quite aptly. Billy, too, is killed in a similar sense, due to his machismo idea of pelting her with water balloons ...to gain the approval of his male friends. Angela's rage at him, though, could also be explained by the fact that she's just been accused of being prepubescent... ...and a queer by Judy, when she's questioned about why she does not shower with the other girls. Of course, now we know that's for obvious reasons. Meg is killed for not only bullying Angela mercilessly, but for her sexual intentions towards the old man Costis... I believe the term is garontophilia, but Meg clearly characterises her sexuality with a degree of guilty pleasure, as she does not even inform her top crony, Judy, of who she's going to be dating. The deliciously apt way in which she's killed, being stabbed in the back, is also indicative of teenage girl behaviour with each other, though this does tend to happen only metaphorically, of course. Judy arguably gets the worst death, as hers is specifically sexualised. Being rather flirty and seemingly promiscuous, Judy represents the complete opposite of Angela. While Angela is sweet, quiet and meek about her appearance, Judy is caustic, extroverted and completely flaunting her sexualized appearance, being both brash and confident as a result. It's rather mean-spirited, though entertainingly so, when her death involves sexual penetration with a white-hot curling iron. The act is not explicitly shown, but I think in this example it's way more effective because of it. The sound design of this particular death is quite stellar, as we hear Judy's muffled but hurtfully intense screams as her sexualized exterior is kind of spitefully used against her in a murderous act with highly sexual overtones. Costas is killed because of his equal irresponsibility in both fraternising with a young lady and assaulting a child, the unfortunate Ricky. While it's nowhere near as effective, his death seems to be inspired by Kevin Bacon's demise in Friday the 13th. Finally, there's Paul, who is killed because of his good-natured but overly handsy manner of wooing Angela, which inspires her flashback of all the mental anguish that she suffered. Aunt Martha, in particular, is so despotic in her gender beliefs that she simply won't have any other option than to raise Pete as a girl – Her sickly-sweet, over-the-top way of speaking and her frippery way of dressing extravagantly also seems to be her way of reaffirming herself as a woman. Ultimately, you really don't blame Angela by the time her snarling, distinctly-membered form appears at the climax. You really feel for her, especially in today's transphobic society, which would have had plenty to say about a little boy being forced to live as a girl. You can just imagine some gammons on Twitter attacking the liberal lefties for causing something like this. Fortunately, I'm convinced that the film is not transphobic, heterophobic, or homophobic. In a rather gentle kind of way, it just seems to suggest that over-expression of sexuality or gender in general is bad. Most of the characters meet their demise because they're too confident in their expression of their sexual or gender tastes. It's not really that different, then, than most other slashers of the era, which tend to preach that sex equals death anyway. Sleepaway Camp just chooses to include almost every other sexual behaviour into the mix. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, as there's flesh on show of this film of both men and women. Though luckily for a female or a gay male audience, the quota of almost naked men on show does outweigh the women in this production. Which again, makes for a nice change of pace really for the genre. While I can appreciate all the subtext i found makes the film seem rather disturbing and heavy, the film is actually anything but. While the themes are very dark, the execution of the film makes the undertones come across in a distinctly humorous and campy way. The bitchy female characters, the so-macho-it's-gay-male characters, the distinctly oddball but visceral gore sequences, they all make Sleepaway Camp a slasher to remember forever. If you've not seen it, I do have to apologise for at least spoiling the ending. But I think regardless, the film still has enough palpable delights for anyone to enjoy it. Even better, get friends around with popcorn beer and some shots. You'll be having a whale of a time before you even get to the first death. I do wholeheartedly recommend this film, and I really can't recommend it enough. It's clearly a popular entry in the slasher cycle, as it garnered two satirical sequels, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, and Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, before a fourth one, Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor, was filmed in the early 90s, but it failed to get completed. It was subsequently padded out with footage from the first three films, and then released as a bonus for fans to see, if you're really digging the franchise. In 2008, Hiltzik did actually return to the director's chair to helm Return to Sleepaway Camp, which is a direct sequel to his first film, and it reunited a couple of the original cast. Neither of the aforementioned films, though, quite achieves the legend of this first entry, however, so you'd be really bonkers not to watch the original and the best. Angela was played by Felissa Rose, who has since gone on to a lorry load of director video films like Zombie Geddon, Corpses of Forever, Slaughter Party, Evil Ever After, Victor Crowley, and also the previously mentioned Return to Sleepaway Camp. Hiltzik cast the role of Angela by having his potential actresses stare into space with wide eyes, which seemed to earn Rose the role. Jonathan Tierston, who played Ricky, also reprised his role in the aforementioned Return to Sleepaway Camp while Christopher Collette, who played Paul, went on to voice act in various Japanese animations, like Pokemon, Sonic, and Yu-Gi-Oh! There was another strange way of casting the role of Ricky as well. Specifically, the actor was asked to swear profusely at Hiltzik in the most vile way that they could. Clearly, Tearsten had the biggest potty mouth, and I believe he actually comes up with the term cocksucker in the movie. Interestingly, Felissa Rose and Jonathan Tearsten reportedly had a thing going on during filming – but it ended shortly after the filming had ceased. Mel Costas, the hot-headed camp owner, was played by Mike Kellin, who'd previously been in Midnight Express, The Jazz Singer, and The Slasher Picture just before dawn. Kellin was unfortunately though very ill at the time of filming, but he kept it away from the cast members. He passed away just a few months after the film was released from lung cancer. Ronnie, played by the rather muscular hench actor Paul D'Angelo, also reprised the same role in Return to Sleepaway Camp, while Loris Duran, who played Billy, went on to costume design of all things on stuff like The Devil Wears Prada. The cook who takes over from Artie, Ben, was played by Robert Earl Jones, who'd been in Trading Places, and he subsequently appeared in Maniac Cop 2. While they didn't have any other appearances in many other things, the actors who played Judy, Frank the Cop, and Aunt Martha, which were Karen Fields, Alan Breton, and Desiree Gold, were supposed to appear in the cancelled sequel Sleepaway Camp 4, so they technically appear in a sort of archive footage sort of way. Unfortunately, director Robert Hiltzik's career was rather synonymous with Sleepaway Camp, despite him having larger aspirations with him returning to write Sleepaway Camp 2, 3, and the cancelled Sleepaway Camp 4, as well as the new Return to Sleepaway Camp, which he also directed. Producer Jerry Silver also reappeared for the first two sequels, while other producer, Michele Totosian returned exclusively for Return to Sleepaway Camp. The music was done by composer Edward Billis, who worked later on The Naked Man, Mickey Blue Eyes, and 2001's Wendigo. Benjamin Davis, the cinematographer, later worked on the rape and revenge film Sudden Death, while editor Ron Kalish was mostly a sound editor who'd worked on the video nasty The Killing Hour and the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. The film's special effects were done by Ed French, who'd worked on video nasty Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, Amityville 2 The Possession, Exterminator 2, The Stuff, Blood Rage, Vampire's Kiss, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Star Trek VI, and Hellraiser IV. He was assisted by Ed Fountain, who also worked on Creep Show 1 and 2. Finally, the assistant director, Richard Fury, had also worked on Friday the 13th Part 2 in the same capacity, and on the original Friday the 13th as a still photographer. The film became a surprise hit at the box office, presumably due to the word of mouth generated from the unforgettable ending sequence and it went on to earn almost 30 times its shooting budget. It's a real shame then, really, that the UK missed out on Sleepaway Camp, at the cinema, where it made no appearance, and even during the nasty scare, the film was just absent from the pre-cert catalogue of VHS titles. The UK's first hint of the film was in 1986, when the furore was all but over on a VHS that was certified 18 after 57 seconds of cuts. So it fell victim to the heavily censored era after the video nasty panic was quelled. These edits were to the scene of Artie scolding, the scene of Meg's dead body being found by Mel, and a reduction of the climactic scene where a bloodied Angela is revealed to have male parts. This cut version remained on the market until 2004, when all the cuts were waived for the uncut Anchor Bay DVD. This is the most recent version, as the film's not been released on Blu-ray yet, so it is just right for plucking, really. I do believe, however, that the rights for the first Sleepaway Camp are notoriously difficult to fathom right now, so, unfortunately, it's not something that's going to materialise overnight. For anyone interested, though, the first two sequels have been released by 88 Films on Blu-ray, so do check them out if you're into it. So that was Sleepaway Camp. Let's head straight into our next one, April Fool's Day. What the hell? On a pier, whilst awaiting for a ferry, a group of friends consisting of Nicky, Rob, Skip, Harvey, Nan, Chaz, Kit and Arch play April Fool's prank interviews on camera, spouting that they're going to visit their friend Muffy for spring break celebrations. Muffy, meanwhile, is preparing for their arrival when she comes across a small jack-in-the-box, making her remember when she was giving it on a birthday of hers, where it scared her. As the ferry arrives, the group get on and head to the island, with the group's pranks becoming more and more intense, such as a fake stabbing. Real injury occurs, though, when the boathand Buck, who dove into the water to save the stab victim, has his head partially crushed when the boat deep nears the mooring dock. Arriving at Muffy's mansion, Nicky, Kit and Muffy gossip about their sexual endeavours, whilst the boys Arch and Chaz fool around in the garden. Later that night, whoopee cushions and fake chair legs cause more mayhem at the dinner table, but Muffy then makes a serious toast to their friendship, only for the glasses to be rigged to spill wine. As the guests retire to their rooms, they find continual evidence of pranks and dodgy stuff, like heroin paraphernalia, rigged faucets, peeping portraits, and the sound of a crying baby playing. While most of the guests end up shacked up together, with the exception of Arch, Skip wanders outside drunk due to feeling guilty about Buck's accident, only to be suddenly grabbed by someone when he wanders into the boathouse. The next day, Kit and Rob end up smooching in the same boathouse, where Kit notices Skip's rotten body underneath the floorboards. While searching, Arch falls into a trap and is hoisted upside down while a snake gets dangerously near. A person arrives and kicks the snake away but attacks Arch as he hangs helplessly, while Nan runs away, upset at the crying baby prank that Muffy had played on her. Kit decides to call the police, only for Rob to find that the phone is out of action. When Kit finds that there's no water, Harvey and Nicky leave to draw water from the nearby well. Nicky descends, but slips and falls into the liquid, finding Arches and Skip's severed heads floating inside, as well as Nan with her throat slit. Harvey descends to save her, and they inform the group. Rob tries to phone the mainland again, getting in touch with the ferryman, who informs him that Buck has been in the hospital ever since, removing the notion that he is responsible. Kit notices that Muffy has a sister in one of her pictures, while the group discuss the pranks that Muffy has been playing on them, such as Nan apparently being upset about an abortion that she'd had, apparently agitated by Muffy's prank of the baby cry. Nicky explains that Muffy has been acting strangely and is suddenly now wearing nurse's shoes, as well as revealing bondage gear in her room, while Harvey reveals that there were newspaper clippings in his room of an accident. Kit snaps and asks that they stop speculating about Muffy's intentions, causing Nicky to storm off to bed with Chaz. After swearing to leave the island by any means, Nicky leaves Chaz to play with a bondage mask, and when she returns, she finds him laying on the bed with his genitals cut off, just as the killer approaches her from behind the door. Kit and Rob find a collection of dolls in the attic room which seem to be configured in the way that the guests have died so far, causing them to panic and search for the others. As they come across Nicky and Chaz's blood-soaked room, they try to find Harvey, only to find him hung to death in his room. As they explore Muffy's boat, they discover paperwork referring to someone as a patient at an institution, which they assume to be Muffy. Deciding to escape on the boat, they return to the house to find the boat key, only to discover Muffy's clothes and evidence that Muffy has a twin sister called Buffy. The pair are horrified, however, to discover Muffy's severed head behind a painting, and they escape upstairs and begin panicking when Buffy appears at the door. Rob and Kit are separated when a door jams shut, and Buffy is left to confront Kit alone. Just as she's about to stab her to death, Kit breaks into an adjacent room, and is shocked to see all of the guests suddenly alive, including Buck, who meets with Rob, revealing the entire day to have been one elaborate joke as they all cheer, April Fools. Muffy explains that the whole set of clues and the deaths are all part of a business venture that she wants to enact with tourists, as part of a spooky bed and breakfast type tour. Skip is actually her real twin, and helped her set it up, whilst Buck was a makeup artist who helped with the realistic effects, with all the victims being told to take part as time went on. Muffy breaks out the champagne to celebrate the prank's success. Later in the night, a drunk Muffy goes into her room and finds a gift wrapped in her room, which turns out to be her childhood jack-in-the-box. Turning it slowly to anticipate the surprise, she's suddenly shocked when Nan appears and slits her throat only to realize that that too is a fake. As the pair laugh, Muffy's jack-in-the-box winks at the audience as the film ends. What is taking him
2: so long? Maybe it's the tides. Wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to be staying together? What about Rob and Muffy?
1: Rob's out back checking the doors.
2: And what about Muffy?
1: She's been acting less than normal anyway. What do you mean? You've been all day and you haven't noticed? Well, who isn't? Those nurse's shoes.
2: What nurse's shoes?
1: The clodhopper she's been walking around in today. I mean, crepe soles.
2: Uh, sh- she was arguing with Nan in the hall... ...before you and Rob came back alone from the woods... ...about something Nan found in her room. Something... What? Something about an abortion.
1: I found something in my room, too. Only I don't think it was intended for me. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, fuck you, Chaz. What did
2: you find? I didn't find anything. Uh Uh-huh. And we're just supposed to believe that, right? That's right. I spent the night with Nikki. Harv. What about you? What about me? What's your little secret, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, come on, Sporto. I came into your room last night. You were jumping around like your ass was on fire. Well, oh, that was nothing. That was just some some newspaper clippings or some car accidents. Nothing personal in that, I suppose? No, who hadn't had a car accident? It's a common thing. I haven't.
1: Oh, knock it off, Chaz. See, what I want to know is how did Muffy find out about this stuff and why... Stop it. Just stop it, you guys. What's wrong with us? What happened to our talk about friendship and undying loyalty? Do you know what we're saying? We're actually sitting here discussing the possibility that Muffy, a very good friend of all of ours, has invited us all here this weekend to... I'm going upstairs. Muffy, listen, we should all stay together. This is my home. I'll be in my room. She does have a point there. We're all starting to get on each other's nerves.
2: Well, as long as long as we all just stay within shouting distance of each
1: other. Are you coming?
2: I'm going to find the way up to the attic. Why? I could probably see the constable better from up there. It's alright. I can keep watch on the stairs.
0: April Fool's Day is one of those traditionally titled slasher pictures that occurs on a special celebratory occasion of some kind. We've got Halloween, prom night, graduation day, happy birthday to me, my bloody Valentine, slumber party massacre, Friday the 13th, Home Sweet Home and Blood Rage, which are both set on Thanksgiving. Terror Train and New Year's Evil, both set on New Year. And then there's this one. This isn't even the only one to be set on April Fool's Day, with Slaughter High and Killer Party of the same year sharing the same occasion. Arguably, though, it was the first to use it, though, so we won't quarrel. Compared to Sleepaway Camp, April Fool's Day has an almost equally shocking twist, but in a completely different and more genre-breaking kind of way. Like its other occasion-based splatter movies, Happy Birthday to Me, Terror Train, and Prom Night, April Fool's Day is a Canadian picture, filmed entirely in British Columbia. Before principal photography began, the cast of the film became acquainted with each other by meeting in Vancouver first. This was a purposeful gesture by directed Fred Walton, who wanted to achieve a realistic rapport between the cast to make their on-screen friendships more believable. Some of this chemistry between the group was rather effective, such as an example when off-screen actress Deborah Goodrich began reading out loud a silly questionnaire to some of the other cast members, which developed into a full-blown debate. Walton took notice of this and had Goodrich and some of the other girls improvise just such a scene for the film, which ended up in the final cut. The scene itself works too. You do feel a camaraderie between the actors that feels quite genuine. This was not always the case, though, as Walton had to give the cast a bit of a scolding when a couple of takes of the dinner party scene lacked any real enthusiasm. His words must have worked, though, as, again, the scene is quite effective in the finished film. Another pretty effective sequence was when Nicky descends into the well to draw water up, only to find the bodies of Nan, Arch, and Skip inside. Shot on a Los Angeles soundstage, the water was littered with discarded cigarettes from the crew and intentionally dyed a dark, horrible shade to make it seem more disgusting. This would prove to be a bit troublesome, though, as Goodrich eventually contracted an infection after paddling around in it too long. The shoot otherwise, though, went rather professionally and concisely. The film itself starts in quite a traditional sense. We're given our slightly idiotic cast of teens, who you'd have no problem seeing hacked up at all. Yet, they still have a slightly more endearing nature to them that does put them in a different class of fodder than your usual slasher riffraff. Our quote-unquote final girl, Kit for example, is a much more independent and strong-headed female lead than most slasher films would get. In the vein of Ellen Ripley, Nancy Thompson or Alice from Friday the 13th, Kit is both intelligent enough to spot the clues that seem to point at the truth, and is headstrong enough to notice the danger around the group. She also takes the more dominant role in hers and Rob's relationship, to the extent that Rob is a gibbering mess by the end of the film, and Kit is relatively in control of herself. The jokey conclusion, though, does unravel some of the impact that this characterisation has, as ultimately, the pair look like gullible tits by the film's end. Some of the other characters, though, do have this more surprising aspect to them. I mean, Arch, the stereotypical jock character, who you expect to be an asshole. I mean, firstly, he's not that much of an asshole that you'd expect him to be. And secondly, he and Chaz joke around with each other that they have a bit of a gay flirtiness about them. Which is not only refreshing to see a guy comfortable enough to joke around in that way, but it feels pretty natural, too. I mean, plenty of my real-life heterosexual friends joke about in this sort of way and rather than it appearing offensive, it just feels a bit warm and fuzzy that they're able to be so playful with each other. Nikki, who initially comes across as being both promiscuous and kinky, actually later reveals that not only is she more emotional than she outwardly appears, but she's damn sensible too. She actually takes heed of the danger, enough to pack up to leave relatively early on, which again, is rather rare when it comes to slashers who usually come up with some contrived reasons where the victims do not use their common sense. Nan, who initially appears to be a geek and a bookworm, also demonstrates a more mature sensitivity, and it ends up revealing that she's had an abortion. It's not necessarily a trait that one would associate with the geek of a group, whom you'd expect to be virginal in almost every way. She even shows her gutsiness when she fake attacks Muffy in the film's conclusion. The film's conclusion, however, is both the film's most memorable aspect and the thing that unravels all the movie's effectiveness. What is interesting is just how many clues there are to the film's truth and this is apart from the fact that practical jokes and pranks have pretty much been established from the very beginning of the film and the film's even called April Fool's Day for goodness sake. For example, even though Nikki brings it to everyone's attention that Muffy is both acting strange and seems to be wearing Nurse's shoes no one seems to notice that Muffy slash Buffy's nails are painted throughout. I doubt Buffy would have noticed such a detail to change it. Not to mention the fact that she tells a Porky about the water being broken. Shortly after Nicky's descent into the well, she goes upstairs and switches the tap on and is sprayed in the face with water due to the prank faucet being installed, so the water clearly does work. The film did, however, have a different ending at first, whereby the guests leave after their weekend is over, only for Muffy to suddenly become attacked by Skip, who bursts out of a wardrobe and cuts her throat. As she screams, the rest of the gang then emerge and laugh at her in revenge for her prank against them, revealing the whole thing to be a retributory gag. This, of course, isn't that far removed from what we got anyway, but yet another toyed-with ending took the film's conclusion to a different level, and I believe this was the original scripted ending. All of the guests take their leave except for Kit, Rob, Chaz and Nicky, who decide to get their own back on Muffy for the stunt that she pulled on them. Sneaking back in, they're shocked to see Skip attempting to murder Muffy so that he can take over the house for himself. The gang intervene to save her and end up killing Skip as a result. This ending was in fact shot and it even ended up in the film's novelisation, but the studio felt that the ending was far too downbeat considering the rest of the film's tone. As I mentioned before though, this ending is both a saviour and a downfall for the film. It's not that usual to have the entire shenanigans of a slasher picture turn out to be a large constructed prank perpetrated on two people. For that, the, re- the film has to be commended for trying something radically different and incredibly risky. For this viewer though, the risk didn't quite pay off for many reasons. As a slasher fan, there's really not any feeling quite like having a body count of zero by the film's conclusion as the majority of a fan's enjoyment of such a film is relishing the special effects as our teenage victims die in various ways. There are special effects in the film, but the amount of gore is woefully low. The prank element would have been so much easier to swallow if we had some more spilt plasma to witness. As it stands, most if not all of the deaths occur off screen, which not only cheats the horror fan of the money shot, but it also gives another very large hint about where the film is heading. When the audience is left feeling a little cold by a slasher, there's not much else other than stellar characters and a palpable feeling of tension to keep them satisfied. The film does have better than average participants, but any feelings of tension are restricted to a few shocks and jumps generated by the film's approach to pranks and tricks. The whole plot point of the whole thing being a prank as well, it just doesn't quite gel. Some of the characters' actions, like Skip being seized in the boathouse, Nicky being accosted in her room by the killer, and Arch being ensnared in a trap, they're rather at odds with the whole idea of the joke. For a trick or a joke to be successful, it really needs only one major thing. An audience. No one is around to see these events as the seemingly threatening things that they are, so why are these characters acting this way? The only conceivable notion is that we are the, that audience. These scenes are breaking the fourth wall, in essence, which is only affirmed by the final scene in which Muffy's jack-in-the-box wince at the screen. It does have the unfortunate connotation, though, of making the audience feel stupid, like you've fallen for the gag. Which we have, really, no doubt about it, but rather than fostering us to just laugh at this, it leaves a bit of a sore point with you. You feel like the film was a bit wasteful of your time, a bit like when Dallas wrote off an entire season as a dream sequence. By the time the end arrives, you also care little for Nan's prank on Muffy, as even a drunken fool like her would know that her throat isn't actually being cut. And so do we. The joke's been done, and we already feel dumb enough. Having said all of this, I didn't hate the film, believe me. It's a competent job, it has more interesting characters than flat ones, and it genuinely tries a different tactic than the usual well-trodden path of slashes from the Golden Age. Some of its elements work brilliantly, but others let it down, leaving it a fairly middling slasher effort. You could do so much worse, but you could admittedly do better as well. I enjoyed it enough that I'll probably revisit it in future, so I'd say give it a watch at least to add a notch to your belt, and to experience something a little different in slasher territory. Muffy was played by Deborah Foreman, who'd later appear in Waxwork and Lobster Man from Mars. Reportedly, she auditioned quite early for the part, but Walton was ambivalent about whether she suited the role. Whilst still considering multiple other choices, she eventually persuaded them to give her a second audition, and this time she impressed them significantly enough to gain the role. Final Girl Kit was played by Amy Steele, who played another famous Final Girl in Friday the 13th Part 2, where she played a fan favourite, Ginny. She also appeared in the TV movie remake of What Ever Happened to Baby Jane. Arch was played by someone very recognisable indeed, Thomas F. Wilson, who's famous for playing antagonist Biff-slash-Griff-slash-Mad-Dog-Tannon in the Back to the Future trilogy. Nikki was played by Deborah Goodrich, who went on to Survival Game and the Alien Nation TV series, whilst Clayton Rona, who played Chaz, went on to Nightwish, The Relic, an episode of The X-Files, and the recent Tom Six film The Human Centipede 3 Final Sequence. The eye-candy boyfriend of Kit, Rob, was played by Ken O'Lant, who was in the cult horror Leprechaun. Muffy's cousin, soon to be revealed Brother Skip, was played by Griffin O'Neill, who later appeared in The Wraith and Assault of the Killer Bimbos. Rather alarmingly close to the events of this film, later that year O'Neill would become embroiled in the tragic death of Francis Ford Coppola's son Giancarlo, when O'Neill unwittingly caused a boat accident whilst under the influence of drugs. A towline between the two boats went unnoticed by O'Neill, causing Coppola to be struck and killed when the boat passed between them, leading to O'Neill being charged with manslaughter. He eventually pleaded to a lesser charge of negligently operating a vehicle and was given 18 months of probation and a $200 fine. Rather foolishly though, he ended up in jail anyway when he refused to do the required community service. The Awkward Harvey was played by Jay Baker, who was actually found last minute by producer Frank Mancuso Jr. This ended up working to the film's benefit, really, as Harvey was more of an outsider character, and his later hiring led to Baker missing the meet-and-greet the cast were having in Vancouver. The Ferryman was played by Lloyd Berry, who made appearances in Jumanji, Scary Movie, and Alien vs. Predator Requiem, whilst Tom Heaton, who played the small role of the police officer-slash-uncle character, had also appeared in The Fly 2, Stephen King's It, Omen 4 The Awakening, Shanghai Noon, Killer Bees and Slither. The director Fred Walton had another well-regarded horror film under his belt, the creepy When a Stranger Calls, when we'll, which we'll be covering later on next year. He followed that one up with When a Stranger Calls Back in the early 90s, but he did make other horror pictures too, like The Rosary Murders for example. Writer Danilo Bach had his debut on this film, and he subsequently became known for his work on the Beverly Hills Cop series. Producer Frank Mancuso Jr. is rather famous for his major contributions to the Friday the 13th franchise, as well as the Species film series. The music was done by Charles Bernstein, who worked on the Section 3 video Nasty, Pigs, in Are You in the House Alone, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and more recently, "Sharktopus vs. Whalewolf." The editor on the picture was Bruce Green, who'd had some high-profile projects, like two Indiana Jones films, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Temple of Doom, Friday the 13th Part 5 and 6, Cool Runnings, Phenomenon, Home Alone 3, Big Mama's House, and Runaway Bride. Like I seem to find in most of these horror films, despite having, in my opinion, minimal gore, the special effects were done by a large team, namely Real FX Limited employees. One of these was Martin Becker. who would worked on Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Friday the 13th parts 3 to 8, Mac and Me, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 6, and Suburban Commando. Likewise, there was Jim Gill who worked on Friday the 13th parts 6 and 8, Suburban Commando, Problem Child 3, and the magical slasher film The Lamp. Another, Betty Kaufman, who worked on Friday the 13th parts 6 and 8, Suburban Commando, and The Lamp. But arguably the most prolific one was Christopher Swift, who went on to work on Freda the 13th Part 6, The Lamp, Child's Play, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Batman Returns, Jurassic Park, The Relic, Galaxy Quest, Artificial Intelligence, Charlotte's Web, Iron Man 1 and 3, Life of Pi, Avatar, Pacific Rim, Captain America The Winter Soldier, and most recently 2016's live-action Jungle Book. It was released in US cinemas and had an opening weekend earning of around $3.4 million on a $5 million budget. Throughout its run, though, it did accrue $12.9 million, so it earned its budget back and then some, so it was at least commercially successful. It was released uncut in UK cinemas in 1986, and it received a subsequent uncut release from CIC on VHS later the same year. The nasty saga, though, had already ended, so it couldn't have been flagged up and the film is so mild in terms of violent content, it really would have taken a miracle to get noticed on or offended by. The film was eventually downgraded to a 15 certificate in 2002, which shows just how inoffensive this film really is. Having said that, apparently the Swedish VHS release from 1987 was reportedly cut to ribbons, omitting any shots of blood, dead bodies or threats, pretty much rendering the film illogical and inexplicable. I don't know how that came about, but for all you VHS collectors out there, I'd love to hear back from anyone who actually has a censored print of this film. Just for the sheer giggles. Well, that's all, folks, for today. I'm practically breathless from all this gabbing that I'm doing, so I'll just shut my trap now for a week and I'll plan my next episode for next Friday. As ever, huge thanks to all my listeners. If you want to tweet me or send me a message through Facebook or Twitter, please do feel free. I'm always up for movie talk of either puerile or sensible in nature. Next week, we're tackling two horrors with a decidedly science fiction element to them – After doing some initial research on them as well, it seems that, at least in the UK, they're also unofficial sequels of each other too, so it's just good serendipity airing on my part. It's a mutated humans theme, with 1984's Mutant, sometimes known as Night Shadows, and Alien Predator, which is sometimes known as The Falling, or Mutant 2. Join us next week for those, but until then, have a cracking weekend, and I'll speak to you all soon. Auf Wiedersehen!